This morning, as I say, we are finishing off our Maker series, which has been amazing, isn't it? So this morning it is that I've got my badge on, so I am putting on my Creation Ministries hat, and it's a privilege to speak in my own home church, because about two and a half years ago, as a church, you prayed me out into the Creation Ministries ministry, so I go around different churches speaking around the Waikato and Bay of Plenty, and um, it's a real privilege. So what you're hearing today is my typical type of message I do, it's, we're going to go through fairly quickly today. I want to just leave some thoughts for you to think it through and to follow things up. But we've also got resource tables out there as well. So this is an opportunity for you to be equipped and to engage with uh, CMI to be able to build up your own faith and also to reach other people. And apparently uh, last week I was away speaking at Fiddy or a Bible church, but Ants preached up a storm, didn't he, about where are we going? So our Maker series has been for this whole month of July. And you, of course, know we've been hammering these three questions. They're three big questions that we as humans all have to answer. You know, where did I come from? Origins. You know, am I created or evolved? Why am I actually here? The whole thing about purpose, about meaning of life, about you know, why we each take a breath every day and live in this uh, world for this day and age. And as we heard with Pastor John, he'd lived 79 years of the calling and the goals that God had for his life. An inspiration, isn't it? That we're here for a reason. We're not purposeless. And of course, where am I going? And last week, Pastor Ants talked about the whole thing of eternity from a very personal point of view, confronted with the reality of our default position as being separated from our Creator and having to go to a place which we don't want to go, or being able to come through the gate of Jesus and be able to go to spend eternity with Him, as Pastor John did this last week. So, again, it's the answers. So what I want to do today is it's just really going through a number of things to give you some answers to think about. It's a huge topic and we're not covering it all today. There's heaps of things we could do. So it's just really want to get you thinking, especially putting on biblical glasses, okay? I'm gonna hammer that thing about putting on a different set of glasses. When you look at the world around you, what makes more sense, the word of God or the word of man? And so that's the thing. The answers I accept to those three big questions will affect how you live your life. Yeah. You know, am I loved and accountable to a God who gives me relationship or am I just evolved pond scum? I can make up my own rules and there's no real purpose. So. There's big stuff here. But I've got a really, really important question for you today, okay? Today's big question for each of you. You ready for it? Okay. Did you leave your brain at home when you came to church this morning? Who left their brain behind? Be honest. Okay, Tiffany, you left yours behind? Okay. <laughs> well, a lot of people would say, here you are, you're sitting in church. Why are you, why are you following those, these myths and, and legends? Why are you wasting your time on something that we know science has proved wrong? You're just you know, living in a fairy tale. It may provide some comfort and a crutch, but it's not a faith, you know, it's a thing that actually doesn't stack up to reality. You hear that sort of things? You guys are disconnected from the real world. You're not, you know, living a real purpose and so on. So, yep, I think something in there, hopefully. Not much here, but inside a brain. So I'm glad you brought your brains this morning because we're going to need them. Okay, you ready? Let's do this. Okay, so there's two scriptures I want to share to start with. Number one is, it says, and you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, all your mind, and all your strength. So we're commanded to love our God in every area, including our mind. So we don't hang our brain up on the peg when we come into church. We're to engage with him and have a rational faith. It's not an empty faith that doesn't have evidence to back it up. Okay, so it's really important to love the Lord in every way, with your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And the second one is, every one of us, that's all of you and me, the church as a whole, if we love the Lord, we are commanded that we are to, number one, honor him as Lord, because he is the creator, he's our savior, and it's all about him, isn't it? It's about Jesus. So I do my creation ministry stuff. It's not so much about science, creation, evolution. It's about honoring the Lord 
in, in giving a, a reasoned faith uh, type answer. So we're called to give a defense for what we believe in our testimony about why I believe what I do, how Jesus has changed my life. That's really, really important. And also when people ask questions, we need to be able to point them to things that will help them in their walk with the Lord and why they should trust the Bible. And we always do it with gentleness and respect. It's really important. Don't Bible bash and point and in a condemning way. We link with people, we love them, and we come alongside them in Christ-like love. Okay, so that's a commandment. So this is what ties us back to CMI. So I've got a two-minute video clip, which says a lot more than I can say in two minutes about why CMI exists, why I do what I do, and why I'm speaking about science this morning. Thanks, Kristen. I'll sneak in here. Okay, good to see you. It's a silent movie. Oh. ancestors understood origins by extrapolating from their own experience. How else could they have done it? Then science came along and taught us that we are not the measure of all the simplest things. simplest explanation is, there is no God. No one created the universe, and no one directs our fate. So you and I are the product of billions, billions share a of, common years, ancestor billions of years, with chimpanzees. This animal eventually became human. I'm sorry, but if you don't understand that humans and monkeys came from a common ancestor... single out evolution and act as if there's some kind of major scientific dispute, and in fact... Evolution is a fact, not a theory. Evolution is a fact. I mean, that's right. There's no question Evolution isn't an opinion, it's fact. Evolution is scientific fact. I'm sorry, I believe in evolution. lived in the ocean 200 million years ago. Eight million years ago, we emerged from microbes and muck. Okay, so that's a quick summary of why we do what we do. So we're called to engage with a culture that is really disconnected from our biblical roots, isn't it? Most people these days, as we talked about two weeks ago, believe that we're just here by, as a result of you know, millions of years of evolution, that God's not behind the whole thing. So CMI, I do represent Creation Ministry, so we're a non-denominational donation-funded ministry uh, that was founded in Australia back in the 1970s and has got offices in seven countries around the world. And recently in Auckland, we moved to a new office in Onihanga. So we've got a bookstore and so on in Onihanga, which is fantastic. So our mission is very, very simple. It's to equip the body of Christ, to equip believers to reach out. So we don't necessarily go out and do reaching out to skeptics and atheists. That's what we are called to do, to reach out to our neighbors, our workmates, and so on. And so CMI, we support the effective proclamation of the gospel. 
So it's really important to know that the gospel is the core of it, isn't it? And we do that by providing credible answers, credible answers to the reliability of the Bible, in particular, its Genesis history. Because as I talked about two weeks ago, Genesis is the foundation of all our doctrine we believe. The whole thing about why there's death, suffering, marriage, who we are as humans, you know, all that sort of stuff comes from Genesis. And so how do we do that? So we are a resource-based ministry. We've got a various range of resources. And what actually, because this is quite a, a graphic type thing, I might stand down here so you can sure you can see okay each of the slides. So number one is our website. Website is um, very, very hard to remember. You ready for it? Creation.com. That's all you have to remember. Do you want to just uh, make sure you're awake and the brains are connected? Do you want to say creation.com? Creation.com, okay? Easy to remember. So we've got thousands of articles, there's video downloads, PDF files, all free for you to use, to share, to, to enjoy, and to search. Got a powerful search engine, put in your difficult questions, whatever it is, radiometric dating, why do bad things happen, the ice age, dinosaurs, whatever, and there's heaps of articles for you to enjoy and share. Number two is we also have our creation magazine, which I'm going to just um, promote towards the end. This is a powerful resource, it's our key printed resource, comes out four times a year, and we've been getting it in our house for about 25 years. And I think our young cooklets, this has been influential, hasn't it? And as for us as a, a family, realizing we can have Bible-based stuff that really builds up your faith. And um, we also have an email, comes out once a week, and I really encourage you, if you'd like to connect with CMI, we're gonna pass clipboards around shortly so you can sign up. Uh, it comes out once a week, it's called InfoBytes, and it tells you about events that are happening in our area for CMI. But more importantly, say something happens like we see here. Christchurch mosque attacks. How do we as Christians deal with that? What biblical-based answer can we give to the world that's screaming out you know, for answers? And so within a week or so, there was a CMI article came out on the mosque attacks, and really, really powerful Bible-based, gracious, but truthful thing on how to respond to that sort of thing. Maybe a new fossil's found. Here, evolution is proven again. What was actually found, what was the science behind it, and what was philosophy? So articles coming out all the time that connect with current events. So when the clipboards come around, if you'd like to sign up, just put your name and your email address and put your phone number in. The phone number's there as a backup. If your handwriting's like mine, a little bit scrawly, you can't read the email address, the phone number is the plan B to be able to sign up uh, to get to connection with you. And the postcode just allows us to target emails to your different areas, which for us, of course, is Hamilton. Okay, so that's, they're our main resources. Now, I talked about two weeks ago, I talked about the whole thing, more theology about if God used evolution, what does that say about God's character? You know, Jesus and all the New Testament writers believe Genesis as being real history. So if we're told it's just myth, the metaphor, then what does it say about Jesus? So I gave all the theology two weeks ago, and today I want to go about, what about the science? Okay, so you ready for some science today? I said, I'm an electronics engineer, and I'm one of these nerdy types. I love science, I love technology. So I want to just quickly go through, to get you thinking again, outside the square of what we're told. So what about science? So there's two types of science. The science that gives us our data projectors, our internet, our medicine, our air travel, all the amazing things that we enjoy these days comes from what we call operational science. And that's the real science that comes up with an experiment. You do a, a series of tests, you disprove your hypothesis, or if it passes scrutiny, you do the test again, and you can repeat it over and over again. So it's testable, observable, repeatable, round and round. 
That's how real science, the science that put Apollo 11 on the moon, you know, that sort of thing, came from operational science, the science we enjoy and are blessed by every day. That's the sort of science I love. We also have a different type of science. So this is done in the present. The second type is, I've got a fossil here. Okay, so I've, oh, I found a fossil. I've actually got three fossils here which I'll pass around. Now, some people think I'm a fossil, but no, this is a real fossil, okay? <laughs> so I'll get past answers, pass these around. So you can each hold a real fossil. And a bit, a bit of petrified wood is always good too. That's a fossil. Not as exciting as a crab fossil, but. Okay, so I found a fossil. It doesn't have any tag hanging on it saying I'm X years old. It doesn't say anything. It's just a, a fossil. Some dead stuff's been preserved in rock, okay? So that's a different type of science. So when I pick up a fossil, I have to use a different type of science than we have that we enjoy and we celebrate. And this is still a valid type of science, but it's different. It's a much weaker science than operational science. So we can't observe this being formed, we can't repeat it, and we can't test it. We just have a piece of evidence in the present, a fact, and we have to interpret. So the key here is we now put on our glasses based on what we believe about the world. We look at the fact, and we interpret how that came to be based on what we believe about the past. You see, so it's a different type of science. So the bias and the worldview of the observer, the scientist, has a huge effect on this because you can't test and repeat it. Okay, so as we go through, I want to show you a series of evidences when we look at the world around us. Do we put on our biblical glasses, taking the Bible as, as real, as history, and makes sense? Or is it millions of years of natural progression, slow and gradual? Okay, so that's the key thing. We need the glasses on to look at the evidence, the fact, in the right way. So this is a great piece of evidence for evolution. Yes, it is, if you believe in evolution. Is this a great evidence for the flood in, in the Bible? Yes, it is, if you believe that. It's the same fact, isn't it? So the key thing is we each have the same facts. So I have my bone, or my fossil. It doesn't have any information about how old it is. It's just a fact in my hand. So how old do you reckon this is? You're looking blank. I know you brought your brains today, because you, you said, we don't know, do we? Now, I know those other, those crab fossils are supposedly 62 million years old. That's the, that's the assignment that they're being given. But when we pick up a fossil, we don't actually get anything. We have a fact, I can weigh it, I can x-ray it, I can drill into it, but it won't give me, it doesn't tell me how old it is. Oh, but Mike, what about radiometric dating? Surely you can measure age very, very accurately, can't you? No, you can't. And I'll you, know, so yes, you can measure chemical ratios in rocks and samples very, very accurately using operational science. Amazing science to measure you know, how much of this and how much of that, but the date that comes out of it is always an interpretation, and the more we get into it, we've got some great resources about dating, uh, radiometric dating, not, you know, Tinder-type dating, we're talking about dating, radiometric dating, <laughs> and how it falls apart in so many ways, okay? So it's an interpretation, so you can never measure age directly, it's impossible to measure the age of anything directly. So, again, reinforcing, we all have the same evidence. We have the same fossils, we have the same rocks, we have the same strata, we have the same atmosphere, you know, planets and so on. We all are dealing with the same facts. Our interpretation is different. So you're ready to put your biblical glasses on? This is what you snap your glasses on, and what you believe about the past affects how you see the present and the facts you have in front of you. So, I just want to go through three areas quickly this morning, three areas that will help you to see the world in a different way. I want to talk about the fossil record and about geology and also about bio, uh, biology evolution. And so we're going to touch those and there will be a test afterwards, okay? 
You bought your brains, didn't you? You bought your brains? <laughs> no, all joking aside, two weeks ago I talked about the fossil record. All around the earth there are billions of dead things buried in rock layers. And I talked about if God used evolution over millions of years, it's a record of death, suffering, bloodshed, and horrible things, isn't it? So the fossil record is in front of us. It's a fact. Each of us, no matter what you believe, can dig up a fossil and look at a dead thing. Okay, so that's, the fossil record is a fact. So did it come about over millions of years of gradual evolution, or is it the result of what the Bible would say, the global flood of Noah's day that completely resurfaced the earth, ripped up all the vegetation, buried under tons, you know, kilometers of sediment, buried dead things and so on, massive destruction. We've got two worldviews about what we believe that resulted in the fossil record. So the fossil record is either a result of evolution or it's testimony to God's judgment in the flood. So we've got two very, very different worldviews. So I just want to just touch on the Genesis flood. So the flood of Genesis covers Genesis chapter 6 to 9. Four whole chapters address the flood. Why it came, what happened to it, how long it lasted for. It talks about the ark, the dimensions of the ark, the family that were on there, the eight people who survived, plus the original kinds of animals that went on the ark as well. And we've got some really good resources about the whole feasibility of the flood, the ark, and all that sort of stuff. So have a look at that. But the key thing is people say, well, that was just a myth, or it was just a local flood happened to flood an area over in the Black Sea. But now we're talking about a catastrophic, earth-shaping flood. So is it fact or fiction? Well, Jesus and all the New Testament writers referred to in the days of Noah, wasn't it? The whole thing, but we talk, Peter talks about the whole thing about how it's a deliberate denial of the flood. And this is a key thing. People deny the flood because of a spiritual connection to it. So here in Peter it talks about, for they deliberately, deliberately overlook this fact. The heavens existed long ago and the earth was formed out of water, not a hot molten blob, out of water, uh, and through water by the word of God. God spoke the earth into existence. And that by means of these, the world that then existed was deluged with water and it perished. So Peter said, they, why would they deliberately overlook this? We have all the evidence around the world, I believe, for a catastrophic flood. People deny it because... There's a spiritual connection. If the flood's real, the Bible's real, God's real, I have to deal with that spiritually and I don't want to. So people will look away from the evidence because of where it goes spiritually. Make sense? So fossils, quickly, we're looking at fossils. So again, I have a fossil here. So billions of dead things all around the world, buried in rock layers, laid down by water. So let's have a look at fossils again, putting on our glasses. We're told if you go to a museum or you look in National Geographic or whatever, you'll see that this is how a fossil forms. A dinosaur or a fish or something dies, sinks to the bottom of the lake or river, and over a long time you get sediment coming in through little floods and so on, it slowly gets covered up, and over a huge amount of time, minerals replace the bones, turns into a fossil, gets uplifted, eroded, you dig it out, and you, there you have it. Makes sense, doesn't it? It seems like a good interpretation of the evidence. Except, again, when we look at the world around us, and we can go outside and look at things that die in the wild today, so something dies in the open, like fish. Now, can you imagine how bad that would smell? Ooh. So what would happen, again, say a month later, if you went back to Rio there and where those fish were, what would you expect to find? Fat seagulls, yeah, exactly, yeah. Lots of fat seagulls, but basically it would all gone when it would rotted away, being scavenged and being cleaned up on the bottom. So when we look, go to the real world, we look at it, we don't see dead things lying in a place waiting to be fossilized. 
They're cleaned up, aren't they? They roadkill, it all just disappears. Even something as big as a whale, within 60 to 100 years, everything, bones, the works are all gone. We just don't see things lying around waiting to be fossilized. So what happens is a fossil, this is the way fossilization has to happen. Something has to be buried quickly for it to become a fossil. So here we have Freddie Fish swimming along, enjoying his day. Everything's going great. He's happy. And suddenly there's a great underwater slump, an avalanche of, of turbidity current of mud and silt come down and cover poor little Freddie up. And sadly he's, yes, he's dead. He died. Okay. But you notice what's happened. Freddie is dead, but he's been cut off from oxygen, from bacteria, from uh, scavengers. And so that's where mineralization can happen and he turns into a fossil. So whenever you see a fossil, it has to be, something had to be buried quickly to be preserved. Like, like his dentures? Yeah. <laughs> okay, so whenever you find a fossil, something's had to be buried quickly to be preserved. So when we look at the real world again, we dig up fossils. For example, this is a famous fossil from Germany, a fish eating another fish, engulfed in that process. Or even here we have an ichthyosaur, which is a, an extinct marine reptile. And this one's a female, and she was covered up while giving birth to Junior. And it's amazing. Look at the detail. It hasn't fallen apart, hasn't been rotting, and so on. It's been just covered very, very quickly. And the scientists have now made fossils that look indistinguishable from fossils you dig up within one day. Now, even I'm shocked at that, but using the right conditions of clay and sediment, a little bit of light warming and pressure, you can create fossils within a day. And these are secular scientists, and you know, this is in science, in paleontology. It doesn't take millions of years, does it? It just takes the right conditions, and you end up with a fossil. And we're always told it takes tens or hundreds of thousands of years. No, biblical glasses make so much sense. The number of fossils we have around the world and how many are so well preserved. Whole fossil graveyards, aren't they? Amazing. All right, moving along. What about stalactites, stalagmites, cave formations? Again, we're told it takes millions of years or hundreds of thousands of years, drip by drip, slowly, slowly making these formations. Well, this was actually a copper mine in Wales. In just 1903, it was closed. And so all those formations are formed in about 115 years. So where's the millions of years? You just need the right conditions, don't you? And after the flood again, you would have had vast amounts, you know, kilometers of sediment, of wet, sedimentary rock oozing out minerals and water and so on, forming formations and caves very, very easily. And then things slowed down, dried out to what we see today. See, the key is not the past, it's actually what we see today is what they say is the difference. Now this is an amazing thing that um, some of you may have seen. So here we have Dr. Mary Schweitzer, again, putting on our glasses about the real world. She's an amazing scientist, digging up stuff in the real world. And they found a, a big, Tyrannosaurus rex uh, skeleton in Montana, Montana, and this was too big to lift the, the, the femur, the thigh bone out by helicopter, so they broke it in half, um, had to take it out in two halves, and when they broke it open, it was like, oh, it smells bad, and inside, it was still unfossilized, it was still marrow and, and stuff inside the bone. So they actually took some of the back to the lab and tested it over and over again, they found recognizable blood cells still in this dinosaur bone. Now, Desma, many of you may know, she works across the road at IDEX Laboratories studying animal blood for her job. And blood, you know, even over a weekend, things start to fall apart. So that blood vessels could maybe last for years is amazing. Hundreds of years, really amazing, even back to the flood or whatever. But millions of years, 65 million years for blood vessels to last. But see, they can't let go of the millions of years because if they do, evolution is not tenable. 
but we're finding more and more all around the world now, soft dinosaur tissue, they're finding um, bones and things that have soft tissue, stretchy tissues. They can't be millions of years old. It just doesn't stack up. See, biblical glasses makes really good sense. Millions of years doesn't. Okay, I just want to quickly touch on geology. When we again look at the world around us, we look at the, again, talking about a global flood, think really, really big, okay? So here's me in the Grand Canyon. Yes, that was me. Uh, the Grand Canyon, of course, is full of rock, heaps of rock layers like a layer cake. Many places you see these areas where these areas of rock go out for hundreds of thousands of square kilometers. And you'll see that line between these two rock layers. They say there's 10 million years of missing time between those layers. But where's the erosion? Why isn't it all eroded and crumbled and vat little uh, gullies and soils and stuff in it? So where's the missing time? It's just not there, is it? So what's the evidence for the 10 million years of missing time? What about folded rock? You look at road cuttings. What about this one in Canada here? Look at the size of the truck at the bottom. All that rock laid down with no erosion between the layers and then the whole lot bent up with no cracking. And then the only erosion you see is on the surface. So why do we, we look at road cuttings, you look at mountain ranges, you see these layers of sediment laid down into rock and only the top is eroded. Biblical glasses, flood, it makes sense, isn't it? Doesn't make sense slow and gradual at all. Even coal, I talked about all the vegetation before the flood ripped up, you know, huge floating mats, some of it was buried under sediment and pressed down, compressed into coal. All around the world, again, where's the erosion? Where's the um, vegetation? What's happened? It just looks like pure silt between layers of coal all around the world. Coal is a great testimony to the flood. Again, biblical glasses make so much sense, isn't it? We're talking really, really big event. And what about erosion? Monument Valley in the States. You know, talking of hundreds of thousands of square kilometres, completely stripped of all the um, soil and, and so on, and only these hard plugs still left sitting up. Why are they still, after millions of years, still there? Even though the rock's harder, it should have gone a long, long time ago. And where's all the other sediment gone? Where's, where's the evidence of it? If it was just floods and stuff washing it away locally. Again, biblical glasses, we're talking continental-wide erosion as the water drained off the continents after the flood, as the land came up. All right, so um, again, we're racing through it, but that, this is a new book that's just come out about two or three months ago. It's out on the table there. This is a really good uh, book. It tells you about how deep time came in, how, what the scientific thinking was, how it's affected the church and the Bible, and what the evidence for deep time is and why it doesn't stack up. So it's a really good book, very um, easy to read, well-written book to equip you about why time is so important. Also for you young people, these are uh, both Exploring Geology and Exploring Dinosaurs, are two books with exercises that are really good, exciting science books for young people, engaging them into thinking biblically and looking at the world around them with biblical glasses on. Okay, I just want to finish off with one last section. I'm coming back to this thing about evolution. Okay, so we're told that evolution's everywhere. We see so many examples for it. How can you deny evolution when we see it happening over and over again all around us? So there's three key things even in Genesis. Genesis is a history book, so it makes three major claims that should be able to be falsified easily using modern genetics. Number one is that all of us came from two original people, Adam and Eve, effectively clones of each other, so genetically you have a very, very bold statement. You know, Adam and Eve are original ancestors, diversifying out to us over the time since then. In the flood, the whole world's population then was wiped out except for eight people, Noah and his wife, Mrs. Noah, 
and then three sons and their wives, okay? Eight people, and so we're looking at, that, that's another major statement. And when we look at genetics today, we see, we see there's actually, they talk about Y chromosome atom, because every man, in the, every male in the world, human male, has a very, very closely related Y chromosome, showing that we all go back to one original ancestor, which was Noah, he was the bottleneck Adam at that time. And also, women carry the, um, y, uh, the mitochondrial, and so you can actually see the three main streams of mitochondria in the world, the three daughters-in-law of Noah. So we've got some great stuff on that, it's fairly technical, but modern genetics points out that the Bible is very, very credible. And lastly, of course, the Tower of Babel, and God dispersed the, the uh, families out based on language, and they ended up spreading out around the world and becoming uh, you know, re reproductively isolated, and they became the races we have today. So those three things should be able to be falsified very quickly, but they actually confirm the Bible today. So just finishing off with an example about why evolution, the examples are given of evolution, don't stack up to this microbes to man thing that we're told is true. So people talk about evolution. So I want to tell you, if somebody says to you, do you believe in evolution? What would you say? Okay. I really encourage you, don't say no. Oh, Mike, you're telling us to say, now if somebody says, oh, Mike, do you believe in evolution? If I said no, they go, oh, you're one of those weirdos, you know, those fundamentalist anti-science people. What you should say is, oh, what do you mean by evolution? Oh, um, oh okay, I hadn't thought of that. Oh, animals change. Well, yes, they do. So you can engage with them, understand what they believe about evolution and what they think stack, um, stacks up behind it. So don't just say no because that's a, a, an answer that will cut people off and you won't be able to have a dialogue with them. Okay, so I want to just talk about evolution. It's a slippery term. What does evolution actually mean? Because here we have a scientist. He's seen some, some butterflies and maybe some have got some different variations on them. We see change happening over generations. That's evolution. No, it's not. So most people think of evolution as this pond scum to people over millions of years, you know, the upward increasing complexity. So I'm going to use the example of dog breeding, okay, because dogs are an amazing example given of evolution because we see so much variety. So who's got a dog here? A few people. Okay. Had Beth before. Anyone got, actually got a chihuahua here? Oh, yes, a chihuahua. Yes. I'm going to poke a teeny bit of fun at chihuahuas, but they're very cute, aren't they? Okay. So bear with me in this last example, which comes from Creation Magazine. It's a typical example of why evolution doesn't stack up. So you ready? So DNA, of course, is the instruction book for life. Every living creature has DNA in it that expresses to what you are, what I am. Plants, dogs, all have DNA. So a bacterium has amazing amount of information on how to make it, but it's nowhere near as complex as, say, for example, a horse. A horse has a lot more uh, complexity than a bacterium, so it has a lot more special information on how to make it. Okay, so evolution says somehow over millions of years, the information had to increase and get more and more complex more and more complex until you end up with something like a horse with so much, all these new features, all these new things have been encoded in by evolution. Okay, so it makes sense. You've got to increase the information. You've got to increase the instructions to make evolution work. So if we look at dogs, so here we have these little dogs. They're very cute. So these things on their chests are just a symbol. They're not really you know, biologically accurate, but they're genes for hair length. So you have, these are middle of the road, mongrel type dogs with short hair and long hair. So two genes, so they have medium length fur, so they're average, middle of the road, mongrel type dogs, genetically rich, and so they fall in love and get married or whatever and have, have puppies, okay, so 
basic genetics is you get half your DNA from mum and half from dad. So that's why we represent, we, sorry, we resemble our parents, but we're not identical. So little guy, number one, he gets short from mum, short from dad, so he's got short hair, okay? That's quite possible within one generation. The two middle ones here are more like their parents. They've got a bit of long hair from mum, etc., etc. et cetera. So they're more like their parents, medium length fur dogs. The last little guy, though, he won the jackpot. He absolutely got the jackpot. He got short hair from mum, sorry, long hair from mum and long hair from dad. So he's got nice thick woolly coat, which is good on a morning like this, isn't it? Especially when our church heating is struggling a bit. Okay, so that's cool, all right? So we see even within one generation from a genetically rich parentage, you can end up with a lot of variety in the next generation. So imagine now that the climate changes and it starts getting really cold. So what's going to happen to the ones that have short or medium-length fur if the climate has changed and got cold? I guess you're all guessing it. Natural selection is going to take them out. They're not, they're not as fit. They're not going to survive the change in the environment. They're less well adapted, okay? So this is what we're told. This is evolution in progress. We see natural selection taking away the unfit. The fit ones survive and breed on. That sounds great, until you see what has actually happened. So yes, you have two dogs there that have thick woolly coats. They're better adapted to that new environment. So natural selection has given them an advantage. But when they actually have puppies, you see that all of them have now got long fur. So you've got a new, uh, you know, area, a new collection of dogs and so on that are adapted to that area, but they've actually lost the gene for short hair, so they've lost a particular trait. So just um, summing up this thing about dogs. So here we have the original wolf-like ancestor of dogs, which everyone would agree is how dogs came to be in the last few thousand years by natural and artificial breeding. So if I want a big, scary dog for guarding my sheep, I take the biggest and scariest of the puppies, and I keep breeding from that litter down the generations until I end up with a very cute, big, great Dane, okay? So yeah, I've selected for largeness, I'll get that. If I want a small, cute toy dog, I'll keep selecting for cute, small, cute, small, until I end up with chihuahuas. But why would you do that? <laughs> okay. But imagine something happened, though. It's every dog in the world died except for chihuahuas. Chihuahuas are the only ones left. You can see now there's no going back. You can never breed chihuahuas and go back to anything else. You've lost so much variety, haven't you? See, again, so we see huge variety, yes, but we've, it's downhill. We've lost so many traits. That's why evolution upwards doesn't work. Every example of evolution given, something's been lost. Okay, so yes, you get beneficial adaptations, but you've lost something. All right? So I just want to finish up again with, um, before we pass back to Pastor Ants to finish off. So Creation Magazine, we're not going to pass the clipboards around. We've got them out there. If you'd like to sign up, really encourage you to look at this for your family. It comes out four times a year, 56 pages, no ads, a brilliant resource for your family. And if you sign up, you get five digital subscriptions as well to share with people. So it comes out four times a year. If you go, go for one year, you get a free back issue. Uh, three years, you'll get two DVDs to go with that as well. So sign up out there, take the, the coupon to Desmond, and she'll help you out with it. We've also got, um, there's the clipboard there. This, I really encourage you to look at this um, answers book. 60 of the most asked questions are answered in this book. A brilliant resource for your family. We also got a DVD pack, uh, more uh, resources to take you on further. We've got uh, more advanced scientific uh, evolution's Achilles heels, written by PhD scientists. 
uh, a youth magazine really encourages young people to, to get hold of this magazine. It's taken from Creation Magazine, collated together for young people, young adults. Children's books, we've got some great resources for smaller kids and a whole range of uh, free tracks out by the door there for you to take away and to, to enjoy and to share with other people. Okay, so it's been a fair rush of stuff, but I just want to get you thinking. Think biblically, get yourself equipped and engage with the culture and have your own faith built up and be able to pull down strongholds that hold people back from believing in God and having eternal life.